0: Tony read our text this morning. That's very providential. Uh, We we are going to read it again. And after we read it, we will pray. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together as a congregation. We come as sinners saved by grace. We do not gather because we're good people and moral and religious people. We gather because we want to be reminded of the gospel, which is the hope for sinners. We gather because we want to be reminded of Christ, our Savior, the one who welcomes the likes of us, the ones who have nothing in our hands to boast, nothing in our hands we bring, as the old hymn says, only to your cross we cling. We pray your blessings upon the reading and the exposition of your word. And since those who hear and the one who speaks are sinners, and hopefully we believe and we cling to our hope that we are saved by grace through Christ, we pray that the Holy Spirit whom he sent to be in his place, to be with us and in us, may illumine the word, may stir up our souls as we hear the word of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Someone last week asked me, what does Philippians 2, 12 mean? That of work out your salvation with fear and trembling if we are saved by grace. What does that mean? The Bible has many tensions, paradoxes, apparent contradictions. We call them paradoxes and apparent contradictions because we, or maybe people like me, and I'm pretty sure that many of you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and if it is the Word of God, it cannot have contradictions. Nonetheless. There are passages in Scripture that are apparently contradictory. Some of them require more or less explanations. And some of them, we just have to bow and say, I have no idea how that works. How is Jesus God and man? How could God die if God is immortal, invisible, almighty? Some of those paradoxes we cannot explain, or we just bow and say, yes, the Bible teaches both. Others, with some work, we can go through them. Our text today, perhaps is one of those that hopefully, with some exercise, we can come to the meaning of what does it mean, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Which makes it more complicated because it was written by the same individual who taught extensively that we are justified by faith alone or through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And that is a tenet of the gospel. And the person who writes text after text, letter after letter, and even died for preaching that we come across a text that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What on earth is that? This morning I would like to go through this text, first of all, seeing the textual connection. Where does this appear? How does it connect to the passage in which it is written? Secondly, we have to see the theological connection. How does this weird text not only connect to its passage in the letter to the Philippians, but how does it connect to the whole of the Bible in its theological content? And thirdly, what is the meaning of the text? What is the practical implication of Philippians 2.12? Let's go first with the textual connection. What, how does your Bible start? Verse 12. Mine starts, therefore. Some of you who read it in Spanish, starts, por tanto. O por lo tanto. Others start what? So then. However you have it, there is a connector in the text. So when you have a connector, a therefore, as the old teacher said, if it is there, it is for something. So therefore means I have to read where is this coming from so I can really connect the passage. Where does this come from? It comes from the beginning of chapter 2, where Paul instructs, do nothing out of contention or out of pride or with pride. That's verse 3. And in that setting, he also says, and by the way, you treat others as better than yourself. And instructing that, he says, and if you do not know how to do that, let me give you a model. What do you mean, Paul? Well, have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Whenever our pride is spoke, which happens frequently, when somebody dumber than us at work tells us what to do, and we feel like, let me put this person in their place. When a customer tells us something we don't like, and we say, I'm gonna tell this guy that he's my customer, but I don't make a living out of his business. And you want to put him in his place. And then Paul says, Before you do that. Don't be contentious, don't be proud, treat the person in front of you as better than yourself. What exactly do you mean, oh, have this mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus? What mindset? Oh, he was in the form of God, equal to God, and being God, he did not regard equality with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself he vacated himself of his divine privileges and prerogatives and became a servant, obedient, obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. If you don't get it, just remember Jesus. When you're ready to snap, when that pressure builds up, and you're going to write that email and say it as it is. Remember Jesus. He was God and he humbled himself to the bottom of the bottom and became obedient to death. And not any death. Death on a cross. Our text is preceded by the fundamental or the most fundamental Gospel tenant, God sent his son for sinners to die. So Whatever the text means, Paul brackets that by the reality of the gospel. And the gospel is salvation is free, not because it is priceless or doesn't have any cost, but because somebody else paid the price, and that was Jesus with his death on the cross. So because he died, to pay for what we cannot pay, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mottier, who died some years ago, in his commentary that John Stott also did, edited, wrote, This commandment is based on Christ's obedience as the basis for our obedience. And then he says, notice that verse 12 starts by saying, so then, or therefore, or portanto, for those of you who have your Bibles in Spanish. Sinclair Ferguson says of the text, the passage reads, work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Big difference. Work out your salvation is not work for your salvation. Because we cannot work for our salvation. Jesus already did that. And though as Christians, Sinclair Ferguson says, we never cease to grow in faith, he adds, the passage means that we do not trivialize obedience. And there comes the tension of the gospel. And the tension of the gospel is that Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all, and there's nothing I can add. And... There's nothing, by the way, that I want to add. Many times when I when I pray in the morning and I ask the Lord for forgiveness, I tell Him I I I I wish I were holy, I wish I'd never sinned. Not only before, but I wish that today I would not sin. I know it's not going to happen, but I also tell Him, but I do not. I'm not interested in paying you what you have done for me. I'm not going to insult you by trying to come up with some money for this intangible. Invaluable gift of you sending your son to die for my sins. However, that reality doesn't make that our obedience is trivial. So there, that brings us to the theological connection. And the theological connection is that gospel imperatives stem from the great gospel indicative. What on planet earth are you saying, especially if you? what, What the heck is that? I'll tell you if you're a child and you haven't come to that point in your studies of English grammar. An imperative is a commandment. When mom says, clean up your room, she's not suggesting clean up your room. You know that. She says, clean up your room. You better do it. But when mom says, I love you, she's not commanding anything. She is stating a reality. She is indicating the fact that she loves you no matter what you do. You may have consequences for not cleaning up your room, but mom's love for you has no fluctuation. That's the imperative, clean up your room, that stems from the indicative, I love you, son or daughter. That's the meaning of that phrase. And some preachers shun imperatives. Some preachers do not like to preach or to state imperatives or even to call people to obey. And they don't like that because they don't want to sound legalistic. They don't want to sound moralistic. They don't want to sound fair. And I get that. However, this is Google information. I didn't count them. I don't have time to do those kinds of studies. But according to Google... There are 1,050 imperatives in the New Testament alone. You can take them all and you can reclassify them and come to 800 types of imperatives. So if you are one of those that say, because this is all of grace, please don't talk to me about commandments, you have a problem with 800 commandments in the New Testament. So you cannot shun the reality of imperatives. We cannot disconnect those imperatives, on the other hand, from the great gospel indicative that Christ died on the cross. But remember the words of Luke Luke 6.46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I say? Remember the the words of James. Even the demons tremble before God. That doesn't make them saved. Remember the words of Jesus to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments." There's no way around it. So the point of the text is, yes, we are saved because God himself humbled to the point of death and death on a cross, but that doesn't mean we trivialize obedience. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, an old translation reads, work out your salvation means get occupied with your salvation. Get busy about the business of your salvation. And that starts to shed some light over the meaning. It is not work for it, but get busy about this gift you have received. Yesterday I saw my children opening gifts for a baby shower that many of you gave. And I told them, I'm going to be 60 years next month, and I have never in my life, in my entire life, received so many gifts as I have seen you guys open this evening. Salvation is this huge, infinite, amazing gift. and. Paul is not saying, work for it, now you have it, pay it. This is not a loan. He just says, get busy. Get occupied with that gift you have received. Another statement, grace, G-R-A-C-E. Another grace statement that surrounds the text is verse 13. For Get occupied with your salvation in fear and trembling inside of the cross. Or, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. Theologians call this monergism. The work of salvation is God and God alone. We don't contribute with God. There's a saying in Spanish that I don't know how to say it in English, but if you... I'm sorry for those of you who cannot understand it. It is, Ayúdate que yo te ayudaré. Help yourselves, that I will help you, says the Lord. I remember being about 14 years old that a person told me, show me in the Bible, where does it say it? Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible appears the saying, help yourselves that I will help you. That doesn't exist. Salvation is a monergistic work of God. Monergistic, mono-ergos. The force, the strength, the power, the drive for it only comes from God. And the text defines it how? It is God who works. It's not you, it is God who works. What does God work both to will and to do for his his own good pleasure? One of the mysteries of the gospel to me is this. According to Ephesians 2.10, we're saved by grace. And the same passage says that we are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And then in the Gospels we find God rewarding our works. You give to the poor, God will reward you. You do good works, and that day God will say, "Come, blessed of my Father. You had mercy of the thirsty. You provided for the hungry. You clothed the one who was naked." Come, blessed of my Father, enter the joy of your Master. Enter the kingdom of your Lord. You're a faithful servant, God will reward you. Why? Isn't he who works both in us to work and to will? Isn't he the one who prepared the good works we do, that we might walk in them? Any good work you've done, if you remember them, because it's funny that in the passage in Matthew 25, the righteous say, when? When did we feed you, Lord? When did we do anything for you? It's an interesting mark of grace in the soul. You don't keep a record of the good things you have done. People have to come to you and tell you, do you remember when you... No. Who are you? Oh, but you did this for me. I have no idea who I'm talking to. That's the way it works. Now, God rewards that. Even though he created those good works for us to walk in them, He will reward faithfulness because he works the willing and the doing according to his own good power. And notice the text. He says it is God who works in you to will and to do because it is not forced labor. God's work is not mechanical. We're not robots. No. According to Psalm 112. 110, I'm sorry, verse 3. The psalmist says, Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. In other words, the day you exercise power upon them, they will voluntarily and willingly do it. There's a story of this Dominican dictator that there had to be a a train track built in the DR at the end of the 19th century. And And the French company says, We need some volunteers. Because we didn't bring enough workers and the dictators is no problem. I'll send you as many volunteers as you want. And when he sent the volunteers, he wrote a telegram to the superintendent of the work. There's here's the two tracks, the two whatever cards with volunteers. Please return the chains for me. So they were volunteers, but they were sending chains. Well, that's not the way God operates. He doesn't chain you to do his will, he makes you willing to do his will. He gives you that sense of Paul, in 2 Corinthians 10, we always strive to do what is pleasing to God. And it is God who puts that willing and that doing according to his own good pleasure. A sign of regeneration is that we delight in God's law. Do you delight in God's law? Well, the law is evil. No, the law is good, says Paul. I am evil, but not the law. The problem is that I have members who betray the desire of my heart. And those members lead me captive to the bondage of sin, says Paul. But in my inner man, I delight in God's law. Heaven for a Christian is two things. Jesus, no more sin. If heaven for you is clapping, dancing, gold, and pachanga, You have not understood the deal. I'm telling you right now, holiness, you mean that heaven is going to be a place of holiness? Well, holiness brings joy too. It's not holiness the way some of us Pharisees present it, because we have this temperament. No, holiness brings joy with it, but the deal of heaven is absence of sin in the presence of God. Now, even at our darkest times, we loathe sin. Even when we have fallen to the lowest, there's one thing we hate, we're Christians, with all our heart, sin. Now, the practical implication comes right after that. Then what it is to work out of salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, we are reading the words of a converted rabbi. We're not reading the word of a Greek rhetorician. We're not reading the word of a modern commentator. We're reading the works and the words of a guy who was accustomed to write in circles and to repeat himself using different words and to use illustrations and parallelisms and contrasts. So Paul is talking about the same subject since he started chapter 2. So at the end of the day, work out your salvation is nothing else than live as a Christian. You are a Christian by grace and by grace alone. And that grace comes through the monergistic work of God and God alone. And it is God who puts the willing and the working in you for his own good pleasure. And it is all of God. Live like that. That's all. That's the meaning of work out your salvation. Get busy with your gift with fear and trembling. So what is it? In verse 14, he repeats himself to explain his point. Do all things in quiet humility. Do all things without grumbling or dispute. Do you notice the adjective that accompanies things? All, panta, todo, who. Choose the language. Not most things. Not the things that I like or that I enjoy. No, all things, including coming to Monday morning at 8 30 and starting to open those emails from work and getting into those dreaded meetings and stupid, boring meetings and dealing with customers and getting before the pile of laundry and preparing the rest of the, the meals for the week and whatever it is you have to put up with. Work out your salvation with fear do all things without grumbling and without complaining that's the meaning of the text it circles back to the beginning do nothing out of contemption or with pride do things not for vain glory as verse 3 says do them for the purpose of serving others and esteeming others as Better than yourself. I've always struggled with that. How do you, what do you mean, steaming others as better than myself? That I have to, I'm commanded as a Christian to have an inferiority complex? No, that's not what it says. This is written by the same guy who says, Don't think of yourself better than what you are or less than what you are. Think of yourself with a measure of grace God has given to you. You're smart, and you know you're smart. Awesome. Thank you, Lord. You're kind of dumb, but you're good with your hands? You can fix anything? Thank you, Lord. You're not even smart or good with your hands, but you can sing or play something. Thank you, Lord. Whatever it is. You're good at executing tasks. You're good at leading people. You're good at designing things. Thank you, Lord. That's the meaning of it. Don't think of yourself better or less. Just take stock of what God made of you, be grateful, and serve others with it. That's what it means to esteem others as better than yourself. It is not, oh, I, I am no faith. I, I'm an expert at sin. I, I will, I'll die saying that. I am an expert at sinning. I am an expert at pretending. And in Spanish, we have a saying that goes, me hago el pequeño para que me carguen. I play myself to be little, so somebody hugs me. I'm an expert at those things. Oh brother, I'm such sinner, and I am nothing and I am When people come to me that way, all of my buttons in the dashboard go red. Yeah. Beware. You know why? Because I'm that way. <laughs> I'm not gonna use the refrain on the streets, but you're not gonna babble a babbler. You know how it goes. I'm not gonna say it in the pulpit, okay? So I know all the tricks. That is not the meaning. The meaning is that even though I'm in front of someone, that by every standard of objective measure, it's a dumb knot. I don't know how to say that. It doesn't matter. I will treat that person as an image bearer of God. And at this point, I will treat that person with all the honor and respect as if they were better than me. I will hold them in high esteem. They are God's image bearer. Oh, it's a brother or a sister. And it is one of those that every pastor has a handful of them. That the church is doing well. Guys are doing excellent. There's every reason to be joyful in Cornerstone. But there's this handful that just keep you awake awake at night. What on earth is happening to such and such? That person I will treat as better and myself. I will run to seek the honor of that person. That's a commandment in Romans 13. Preferring one another in honor. Running to beat the person to the water fountain. You know why? To say, drink, brother. Push the button first. Beating the person to the door to open the door. Please go. Because you're preferring that person in honor. You're putting them ahead of you. May I use a stupid example? I'm going to use it, because this morning it happened to me. Some of you come early. Blessed be the Lord. Please take the first parking spot, the first one, the one that is close to the yellow railing. You know why? Because if you take that spot and it's empty, you're allowing room for all the others to come and pick the more comfortable spaces. Because when the parking spot is all the way through 128. And the only thing left is that parking spot. You need to do a lot of maneuvering to take that one. So If you come early, take that one. It's not going to hurt you. But you're preferring one another in honor. It's in the little stupid things that it's manifest. I know. We want to be reading the deep theological things and be arguing. Oh, did you read lately? Or did you hear Pastor Freddy's class today? I don't think uh, that he got it right. He hasn't read Hodge yet. No, no, no. Take the parking spot that is uncomfortable. That's the deal. That's how you live as a Christian. That's what Paul is saying. Simple things. Because that is the second commandment. Love God with all your heart. Didn't, didn't Darren read, read, read that this morning? Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, i like to find a comfortable parking spot. I love it. Okay, let me take this uncomfortable parking spot so that when Freddie comes or whomever comes, takes it. Oh, but they are the latecomers, They don't deserve it. Awesome. Much more. Let me prefer them in honor for being the latecomers. That's the deal. It's loving my neighbor as myself. That is the meaning of work out your salvation with fear and trembling according to the text. This is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Because for some of you, this may be a shallow, superficial thing. Do you do it? Do you live that way? With your wife? With your neighbor? With your co-workers? With your fellow students? With your boss? You don't, right? Because I don't. Do you never complain at work? Oh, my poor wife. She only hears the the donkey. (sighs) That's me in my office. Just as a donkey. How do you say rebuznar? A donkey doing that, complaining. Another stupid email. Another meeting. She hears that. Hopefully my co-workers don't because to shine the gospel before them. Right? But that's why we need the gospel. That's why every time the donkey comes out, the next thing is, Lord, have mercy on me. Please forgive me. I did it again. That's why we must preach imperatives to be driven back to the great indicative of the gospel. We don't live by those things. Jesus did it. He didn't open his mouth when he was led to the cross. He didn't defend himself against his accusers when he was being tried. He went all the way and prayed for sinners. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You know why? That we we may have his obedience. And now we take a shot. And when we fail and fail and fail, we go back to that cross. It's me who crucified you. Please keep having mercy on me. That's the gospel. And then verse 15, so that you may shine the light of the gospel, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as light in the world. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Same words. Let your life be lived in such a way that your light shines Before people. And they do what? Say, what a great guy. What a great woman. What a smart person. No, then let me glorify your Father in heaven. That's the name of the game. It's Peter's exhortation. Those who slander you, and let me give you the bad news. Lots of people, of people slander you. And me. Even sitting here. What a stupid sermon. I need something deeper. That's fine. What, what did he say this morning? Why does he always say the same things? Same happens to you, by the way. And at work? And that drinking fountain? No, I know we work remote, but if you still go to an office and you're drinking this stupid company, this stupid management that brought here, they don't even know what we do. But they bring these guys from Harvard with their MBAs and they tell us what to do. Do you think they don't say the same about you? You see that dumb idiot? How has it been that long working here? It works both ways. Solomon says that. Solomon says, don't incline your ear to hear when your servant is speaking evil of you. Because if you do, remember you've done the same with others. It's a two-way street. Paul says, even those who slander you, yet may they see your good works. 1 Peter 2.12, not Paul, Peter. May they see the conduct of your life. And in the day of visitation, when the judgment day comes, and God calls everyone to account, they will say, no, there was a Christian among us. And I know he or she were different. Be blameless. Blameless doesn't mean perfect in the text. It means don't, don't live a scandalous life. Don't be the person who has 10 arrest warrants and has problems with, with the legal system and has three DUIs, a license suspended, and no insurance company wants to take him or her anymore. Don't be that person. Be blameless and shine before the crooked and perverse generation where we are be lights in the world. Are we light? Do we shine as different? Or we are like everybody else, we just come to the preaching club on Sundays. Somebody shows up on Tuesday at our homes and they'll say, oh, this guy is exactly like the rest of the people, but they go to a club named Cornerstone Bible Church to hear a guy talk. No, Paul says, shine. Be guileless. Be without malice. Be the person who's easy to deceive. You say, no, but Proverbs says that I have to be wise, not like the simple man. Be easy to deceive because you're guileless. Not because you're silly or fool or mindless, but because you live without guile, without malice. People know that if there's a rumor about something, that cannot be true about that person. I know them. Be that person. Be the best at what you do. The best. Be the person who's, hold on, the report is five minutes late, because you need to center that graph or that chart and have the same margins on each side. Because you need to pass the spell checker again. Because you need to make sure that it's well written. Or you need to make sure that your repair was well tested and done. And if you're a mechanic like Garnier, you need to make sure that the car goes out clean out of my shop. I'm not going to send you a car all filled with grass and filth. You didn't do that for me, brother, by the way. You send it clean. But I'm saying, whatever it is that you do, excel at what you do. Be the best at what you do. And if you are not the best, make sure you're doing the very best of what you can be. Oh, so people see me and give me a good bonus and a good No. oh, no. The text says, And you may shine the glory of the gospel. That people say that's how a Christian looks like. At work. And this is why <laughs> we need the gospel. This is why we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. Why? Because we know we're not, we're not that way. Oh, sometimes I just get it over with. Oh, I have a meeting with my boss. He wants to check what I've done in the week. Quickly, seven points. Here, boom, here they are. Well, I could have done better, but you know, he caught me on a and I just told him the seven things that were more important in my mind just to get rid of him. I know I'm not that way all the time. So yes, I need the gospel. And we need to stand on Jesus' obedience daily. And that was Motiere comment. I was going to say a couple of more things, but I will skip them and go to verse 16. Persevere in the truth, because that's what the text is about. The motivation is not Be good for goodness sake, because Santa Claus is coming to town. No. Motivation is persevere in the truth. Hold on to the gospel. Keep grasping and holding on to the word of life. Because the motivation is the hope of salvation. That's what it is about. And I love it how Paul ends the the, the statement, that I may be proud of you in the day of judgment. Paul, Paul was a weird guy. Can you imagine Freddie standing up here in the pulpit saying, guys, we're having a visitor next week. I mean, some pastors do it. I've seen it. We're having a visitor next week. Please come in your best, clo- best clothing, best behavior, best of who you are, because I want this visitor to see what great people you are. I want to feel proud of you. We say, what happened to Freddie this morning? Well, Paul is saying, I want you guys to shine the gospel so that in the day of judgment, I know I did not labor in vain. I preached the gospel, and it did its work of sanctifying you completely, body, mind, and soul. Conclusion. Conclusion is the elephant in the room. Perhaps some of you are smart and picky enough to say, Yeah, but you haven't dealt with the fear and trembling. I left it for last. It says fear and trembling. Why do we do these things with fear and trembling? Because we're talking about our eternal souls. That's why we do it with fear and trembling. This is not a trivial thing. This is not getting ready for our taxes on April 15th. Oh, those give you, they give you chances to keep filing and filing and filing. No, no. This has to do with your never-dying soul And the eternal destiny of your never-dying being. Your body will dissolve to the four basic elements we're made of, because we're made out of the ground. But who you are, you... Is never dying. And this has to do with your salvation or the lack of it. This is no trivial thing. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Jesus said that. I read this week. That there are 20 million tons of gold dissolved in the ocean water and in the bottom of the ocean. 20 million tons of gold. For reference, one ounce of gold is roughly 2,000 bucks today's prices, give or take. One ounce is about 28.34 grams. Alex can correct me, he's a jeweler. So you're saying, okay, 28 grams of gold are worth 2,000. How many a kilogram of gold is worth of? Well, it's about seventy-five thousand. And how much a thousand kilograms are worth of? And how much a million kilograms? That's one ton. There are twenty of them. It's whatever number one point forty-three potential power to how many zeros? I don't even. I cannot even count to that number. Cannot even imagine that number. Take it all and pay it to God. He doesn't cover one soul it will not deliver one person from eternal condemnation. That's why this is important. That's why Paul says, get busy with your gift, with fear and trembling, because you have an eternal soul. He took the blood of Christ to purchase it. And if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him to death when he took the sin of his people upon himself. Don't even imagine that on that day, God will say, well, you know what? It's okay. Come on in. If he does that, it will be because of Christ. But I don't find any text in the Bible leading to that. I'll be honest, I wish but I don't find any evidence that it will be that way. The evidence I find is that God did not deliver his own beloved son when it came to pain for sin. Don't fancy he will deliver you or me outside of Christ. And the fear and trembling is not because we may lose salvation. We cannot lose what we could not and did not gain. The fear and trembling is because of of the preciousness and the value of the gift of God in Christ. May God bless his word. Father, we commit the preaching of the word to you. And we ask that your spirit may do the conviction, the leading to righteousness, the consolation, and the driving of the gospel into our souls. And we cannot do anything about it. Did our best, but our best is nothing. It's your spirit who has to make the word effectual. We commit the preaching of the word to you, not only here, but wherever your word is preached, has been preached. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.